Chapter 41 It was dusk on the second day of Jamie's disappearance when they finally came to visit Vigantus Borsuk. Two uniformed officers and two detectives crowded into his front room, stepping over knick-knacks and thingamajigs everywhere. Other officers had begun searching other rooms, but it seemed that Mr. Borsuk lived, ate, and slept in the downstairs room. His floor was overlaid in oriental rugs. Their geometrical patterns were worn and faded and barely visible through the clutter. The walls seemed to topple inward with leather-bound volumes and rolled-up maps and small artifacts that looked peculiar and ancient, some of them obviously phallic, Detective Sergeant Dunn noted. The larger busts and figurines and strange-looking rocks Mr. Borsuk couldn't balance on his shelves ended up on the floor among stacks of marked reference books and used mugs and plates he hadn't bothered to clear away. Propped along the shelves was a collection of bow and arrows. The arrows were tipped with flint heads. There was something that looked like a broken spear with notches up the shaft. In pride of place, in a corner of the room, stood some kind of animal tusk with dark zigzagging lines carved along the circumference from the wide end all the way to near the tip. The tip had been removed with a smooth rounded cut. A few wooden chairs stacked with papers, and an ottoman with a high back were the only pieces of furniture in the room. The ottoman had been made up as a bed. It had an angle-poised lamp drilled into the side, so Willie could sprawl there and read himself silly. The only light in the room was the lamp, which was switched on. As the officers crowded in, Willie dropped onto his ottoman, almost knocking the lamp sideways. He let his head fall back onto a large velvet cushion. It was a practiced way of sitting without having to bend his knees. Just answering the door seemed to have exhausted him. Although the curtains were heavy and perpetually drawn, he squinted at the men he knew had come to invade his mind. Forgive me, he said with his accent. I'm not at my best in the mornings. They could barely see his mouth moving, his mustache was so big. D.S. Dunn said, It's after eight in the evening, sir. Willie shut his eyes. I must be getting worse. There was no sign the old eccentric was teasing them. He seemed to hide behind a protracted cough while the officers looked around steadily, slightly unnerved the way he stared at them. For his part, Willie had been expecting them to come. Because of his acquaintance with the boy, he knew he would be asked questions. Now the moment had arrived, it all seemed so melodramatic. It was an atmosphere thick with suspicion. He put his glasses on. The officer who had introduced himself as D.S. Dunn was taller and appeared more distinguished than the others. Willie decided that this was the man who would be asking the questions. He was right. Dunn stood close to the ottoman. Jamie Heller, he said. It was so succinct and well-timed, Willie had to dare himself to look up. The officer's tone had signaled his presence in the room precisely and made everything abundantly clear. What about him? Willie answered. 
The other suited officer was having a good snoop around, nosing at the bookshelves, although his eyes kept returning to the big engraved tusk in the corner. This officer couldn't resist stepping up and trying to handle the thing. He squatted in front of it and reached out. Wheelie lurched forward on the ottoman, making Dunn step back. Please don't touch that, he snapped. For a moment, the old fuddy-duddy looked ten years younger, his hand outstretched, frozen and full of command. Dunn figured, as likely as not, the suspect had been faking his frailty. Willie sank back into his cushions with renewed fatigue, coughing again, as if he could read Dunn's thoughts. That is a precious item, he said softly, and must only be handled by experts. D.C. Keefe smiled and withdrew his hand slowly. He raised himself up from a squatting position. Wouldn't want to touch anything precious, he said. What is it, anyway? Dunn asked. Willie grunted. It was a perplexed grunt. There were many things he might say about the tusk horn. He knew such a discourse would not have interested these men. It's thousands of years old, he said. He answered in spite of himself, feeling a gentle rise of enthusiasm. I believe it must be a musical instrument, he added. He struggled not to say more. Even now, if he shut his eyes, Willie could imagine some of the uses the horn might have had. Where did you get it? Dunn asked. On my excavations. Where was that? On the moor, he said. Dunn and Keefe glanced at one another before Keefe continued to step around the room awkwardly, trying to find the unoccupied spaces on Willie's carpet, as if they were stepping stones across a stream. They could tell that their quarry was getting more nervous now. It may have originated in northern Spain, Willie said. He was looking at the officers one by one, but they weren't really there. There were ghosts passing through. It's from an extinct species of bull, he was slipping helplessly into some kind of narrative. The carvings are, I would like to think, decipherable, but I don't know what they mean yet. They don't match other kinds of markings I've found on objects in the area. D.C. Keefe had made it to the curtains. Yanking hard on the thick green material, he mumbled something about letting the day back in. The screech of rings against the brass rail made Willie turn away reflexively, but opening the curtains had made no difference to the gloom. Not a lot better, Keefe admitted. I don't know what you're expecting to find, Willie said. The boy isn't here. Dunn took a step forward. Vigantus Borsuk, he said. I'm here to arrest you on suspicion of murder. Don't be absurd, Willie sat up no longer in the slightest bit fatigued. You do not have to say anything, but it may harm your defense if you fail to mention when questioned anything you later rely on in court. This is ridiculous, Willie spluttered. Anything you do say may be taken in evidence. What evidence? What are you talking about? D.C. Keefe had his pocket notebook out. He was jotting down the gentleman's exasperated responses. One of the uniformed officers already had a set of handcuffs ready. They clanked as the officer approached. He was making soft sounds for Willie's benefit, like a farmer trying to reassure a startled cow. 
As the considerate officer tightened the cuffs around Willie's wrists, Dunn said, We can talk about all the evidence when we get to the station. Willie's tongue loosened again in the back of the car. For much of the trip, Keefe was kept busy scribbling it all down in his notebook. Willie talked freely about the day he and Jamie had held hands while they were on a walk together. They were walking along when he went blind, he told them. He talked about the shock of losing his eyesight like that, and how grateful he was that Jamie had been there to hold his hand. Willie may have been lyrical about how sweet the boy was, but the officers had a real sense that this was about so much more. Soon enough, Willie's worries became tangible. It was as if he'd only just realized how much trouble he was in. He began to say odd things like, You believe you're standing on something solid and reliable, but the fact of the matter is, the ground beneath you doesn't exist. At one point, he waved his handcuffed wrist around, swirling around the sun, one star among billions, in one small galaxy among billions more. Willie chuckled, for no reason anyone in the car could fathom, other than this was likely to be evidence of his guilt. What he said after he stopped chuckling didn't make sense either. It's too vague, he said, chewing on the word vague. And here we are, always so sure of ourselves. Keefe took a note of this too, and the rest of it, ensuring it was all faithfully recorded, while a few miles behind them, in the final glimmers of that day, scenes of crime officers carefully scoured the property they'd removed their suspect from. Chapter 42 What he saw when he opened his eyes couldn't have been real. It didn't make sense. He was on his back. There was a fire crackling, but he couldn't look at the fire. He could feel its warmth. It cast its flickers over the rough walls of the cave. There were shapes on the walls. The first one he saw on the stone vaulting over his head was a black spiral shape. As he stared at it, the spiral spun inwards on itself, slowly at first. He tried to move his legs, but they were strapped together at his ankles. His hands were free to move, and his mouth wasn't gagged. He could moan softly in case there was anyone nearby. When he tried to move his head sideways, just slightly, it was agony. He realized he wasn't wearing any clothes. When he closed his eyes, he was in another world. He was being killed. Somebody was raining blows on his head with a round rock. After two or three blows, he staggered away to die. It was another flaring sunset over the hills, but that was just the whole lie of nature. Nature was so tempting, with plenty of singing birds and the play of light over the forest and the pure joy of blue skies, but everyone knew nature could turn sultry. And before long, she was hurling her fury so fast and hard there would be nowhere to hide. Death wasn't the same then. Jamie knew this too. Everything was different. Murder didn't exist. People didn't die. The person who'd killed him wasn't a person. 
He'd worn the artifacts of nature. His killer, with the head of a bull, dropped his pummeling rock into a glowing hearth, causing a terrific shower of hot ash. Jamie opened his eyes. The fire was still crackling. He wondered how long he'd been trussed up so he couldn't move his legs. He was too weak to get up anyway. The spiral on the wall above him started to spin again. It seemed to have been freshly etched there. It had been done with black ash, probably, and earth. Just beyond the spinning spiral was the shape of a hand done in some kind of red tincture. There was nobody around to moan for. This place was more in the middle of nowhere than Jamie imagined could exist. It startled him when he thought about whoever was keeping him tied up like this, coming back for him. With his eyes closed, in that other world, he could see the glowing embers rising towards the darkening skies. He was about to go into that darkness himself. His wounds were bleeding badly. As well as the head of a bull, the one who had killed him wore the leafy branches of an oak. He carried a long magic tusk he could breathe into and make a horrible din with. That's why they called him Horn God. He followed close by as Jamie staggered in the throes of a death full of tricks and fancies brought about by none other than friend nature. The fire kept his right side warm. His left side was chilled. He preferred the cold side and thought about that. He was sweating so much. Jamie tried to open his eyes again. He could still hear the fire crackling. He hated the spinning spiral and the red hand floating next to it. The spiral was getting closer and closer to him. It seemed to swirl more rapidly. When he closed his eyes, he was almost dead. For most of the time, while he lay there, Jamie thought he'd already been killed, and death was being tied up in this hell he was in. He remembered the moment he'd died. It was a moment of wisdom. He'd spun around with blood in his eyes and raised his hands to the rising moon so he could pronounce every word of the curse of nature and drop to his knees with those last words on his lips while horn god's hot embers fell all around him. It was those dying words that gave birth to language. The near-dead would say something confusing nobody understood, or the near-dead might try to sing, or if the near-dead didn't have much strength left, they would whisper what they had to say so that only the horn god could hear it. And the horn god would have to tell everyone afterwards what it was about. Just as Jamie was about to fly up to the darkness, horn god edged much closer, cupping his bullhead ears as those last delirious, unearthly sounds were formed in the boy's throat. The sun wasn't the sun then. It was a torch that was lit each new day so that the living could make their way around in the forever dark. Every now and again, the sun torch would burn out of control unless something could be done about it. Jamie had been made to submit himself to this painful end because for too long his kind had endured the worst luck. It had become too difficult to survive. 
there was no water left to drink. Tribes of beasts, once plentiful, were scattered and dying in the dry forests. Jamie had been nothing but trouble. He was the one who had got his kicks destroying the things that others loved. He'd destroyed so much it was no longer possible to chase a herd of deer to the water's edge and trap them there because the rivers had all left to go somewhere else. The fact is, Jamie had been a schemer all his short life and it was his fault things were going so badly wrong now. He could remember what it had been like to die. He coughed back the blood. It clogged in his mouth. He remembered Horn God straining to listen. On his knees now, pointing at the skies, Jamie had sworn that the sun's blaze would not abate. After he was gone, it would burn even hotter, Jamie had whispered, and they would all succumb to their fate. In his last moments on earth, he remembered spluttering these strange words and Horn God listening so close by. He told Horn God that they'd all been born from the belly of a single female. He said they'd been crawling through the woods ever since, with no hope of knowing where they were or what they were doing there. But when the woods left to go somewhere else, Jamie had said, the people too would have to go and never come back. Horn God seemed pleased with that. He nodded his great bull head and told Jamie that after he was free, his body would be dragged up a hill and lashed to a post, where it would be set on fire and his glowing bits would fly up to the full moon. A song would be sung then, while Jamie's body burned. Horn God told him that that's when he would take his tusk and blow out the sounds of Jamie's last words. Even though those words were a terrible curse, Horn God would have to interpret in the best possible light for everyone else's sake. <laughs>